Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life Podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and today's guest is Isabel Berwick. Isabel is host of the FT's Working It podcast, which launched last year and has become one of my go-to listens. Isabel and her team managed to create a really interesting listen every week and we share many of the same interests, which is why today's episode was particularly enjoyable. And it's a slightly different format from usual turns out when you get a journalist like Isabel on the show she's also very good at asking questions so I end up doing more talking than usual which I hope you enjoy because we had a really interesting conversation covering a range of subjects including how different organizations continue to adapt to new ways of working and whether we're doing a good job on upskilling team leaders and managers. On that note we cover the evolving role of a manager and discuss whether we should expect people to become coaches of their team members or whether we need a separate person in the team to fulfill that role. We also discuss what skills are becoming more important in the future of work, the four-day week, and even pay transparency. Finally, Isabel shares some of her favorite business books of the year, so if you're a business book geek like me, you'll enjoy that part. Now, very quickly, as you know, my book, Work Life Flywheel, is being published on January the 17th, so if you haven't already, make sure you go to the link in the show notes to pre-order yourself a copy. As I said, you're going to hear enough of me talking during the episode, so I think we should get on with it. This is my conversation with Isabel Berwick. I find it fascinating now what you're seeing in corporations, which are almost trying to replicate startup world or sort of it's this decentralized approach. I think you you and Andrew were talking about on the podcast this week. It's that the, the model which a small business like Lush has where they outsource the autonomy to shop managers to be able to take yeah. control over their workforce and hire. And I think we'll probably see that more at corporate level as the decentralized nature of their workforce in terms of location forces them to also to distribute the power a little bit. I don't know if you've no, seen I'm, any evidence of that. I haven't seen much evidence, but I think, yeah, that lush was interesting, but I think that is probably what will happen. But I think it's, um, I presume there'll be a lot of resistance at the top. You know, if people want their workers back in the office or back in the workplace, it's a, it's a trust issue, isn't it? If you can't see them. A lot of leaders find it, I mean, as, as humans, we find it hard to trust people we can't see. That's yeah. how we're hardwired. So there's a sort of relearning that has to go on, I think. Yeah, it's definitely a leadership challenge. Um, and I think we've, the, there were signs, and look, a few companies have adapted to remote work, distributed work. But I mean, it's so evident now that we're reverting back to some extent to mm-hmm. what some organizations are, to what we saw before. I mean, do you think? that it is possible for those traditional organisations to even adopt these new models? Or do you think there's going to be a sort of split where it's any business which has been founded in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, which has got adopted this culture, will naturally create a more distributed workforce and those traditional organisations will just revert back to the mean? I don't know. I think because we're still in such an uncertain thing. I mean, what I would say is that a lot of these, you know, consultants, law firms are some of the ones that have, or say they have the most sort of progressive hybrid policies they're really working hard and they've got the resources to throw at it as well so I think some of those traditional firms are trying really hard and are trying to but I'm not sure if they're doing it because it's a great thing to do or because it's a recruitment and retention issue I mean I'm not sure if those things are separate anyway but I'd be interested to see how it plays out but I think Mm. a lot of these traditional companies are are sort of giving it a go but whether or not where they'll land I don't know you might have a better sense of that than me 
I think there is fundamentally just a challenge with team leaders and line managers having the skills and the resources to be able to effectively manage this way of working. There was a challenge with training before, you know, and I think most managers recognized it, but some of the more recent research, there was a Deloitte or perhaps EY survey recently, which really honed in on the fact that managers feel like they don't have the right skills to be able to manage a hybrid workforce. It's all very well for the, you know, the C-suite to be giving pronouncements about how things should work, but unless the people working for them feel both empowered but also having the requisite skills to be able to do it i think that that's the potential challenge for the big organizations yeah so a big a big training and shift in leadership challenge yeah no i think that's completely right and i think the issue for managers is probably if you're a good manager is probably turning into a therapist for your team yeah which i think started in the pandemic you know, when you were talking to people in their homes and I, I, and it's also demographic, I think, I think younger workers demand a more personalized approach, you know, and they want one-on-one, they want a sort of holistic view of themselves as people as well as workers. And that's quite hard for, you know, I'm Gen X, but you know, it's quite hard for boomer and Gen X managers because that's not how we came into the workforce. Mm. And I, I think a lot of millennial managers are probably, you know, in that mindset but probably burning out because if you're a decent person, you want to help your team, but the the demands can be endless, I think. Yeah. And I think those demands increased and, and increase when you are having to manage two different types of interaction. So, you know, I think it's a bit of a fallacy, the idea that that all Gen Z and millennials want to be in the office. Actually, I think a lot of the independence and autonomy you get from working and it doesn't have to be working from home. It can be this sort of working from near home idea where you work in a in a satellite office or a flexible working space near your house. But not not every not all of these, you know, the younger generation want to return to the office. But what they do demand, as you said, is a different type of support and development from, from their managers. And you're right, it does take its toll. I mean, I always spend loads of time developing that's where I spent most of my time, but you know, but but before I left my last company, I would spend most of my time one on one with people working for me and you know developing i suppose it's that idea of coaching on the job and you know uh, training in the flow of work but that does take its toll when you when you've got so many direct reports which increasingly as resources are stretched you know more companies are having to strip back on the management layer and that means they have to manage more people oh you wonder don't you whether they'll get the level of development that they, they they desire I wonder if it could be, I mean, I haven't thought, I'm just thinking on my feet here, but whether, you know, the ther- the manage, the coach aspect of it could be a separate role or sort of therapist slash coach. So yeah. your manager manages your workflow yeah. and your performance. And then there's a separate person brought, you know, maybe an independent. I mean, some companies do have coaches. Um, you know, there's a, there's a coach at the FT, which, who's fantastic. I mean, you know, it's just one person you can it's not a regular thing you can do but you, you know if you're wanting a bit of advice there's someone there and I, I do think you know we, we can't all be Wendy on billions I don't know if you know that show where she's yeah, a yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. in-house psychologist yeah, yeah. and coach but honestly yeah. that model I reckon that could become more and that's a real retention tool isn't it in-house oh, yeah, coaching absolutely. and career development 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely all for the idea that managers turn more into coaches, but it's a completely different skill set. So again, many managers remain subject matter experts. You know, they've been promoted into that role because yeah. they have excelled in that area. And actually, I come from, I suppose, more of a technical and creative background you know often you have to you have to understand the mechanics of someone's role and the challenge of their role in order to be able to effectively coach them as well it's asking a lot isn't it to just say oh by the way all that stuff that you did before also we want you to become a coach (laughs) it's ambitious um and if we're going to approach that it will take time but i prefer your idea you know have some have some people who are specifically designed to be there to support development or you know not even development in in wendy's case She's a psychologist, I think, isn't she? It's sort of, you know, keeping them yeah. mentally stable and not taking outrageous risks. I saw a post you put up the other day, and I think it's following the um, interview one of your colleagues did with Tyler Cowan about talent. You asked a question on LinkedIn, you know, what skills do you think we'll need in five years' time? I mean, how do you see that? Or who would you hear people saying to you? It's hard to predict the future, but there seems to be it certain is. skills which we uh, pr- assume were going to be more and more relevant. It sort of splits into two, doesn't it? I thought the responses to that post split into two. So it's a bit like under the FT articles, you know, we have commenters splitting into two. So you've got the trad people who yep. say, you know, uh, the skills for the job, that's what you need, you know, train them, do the job, bam, that's it. Mm. And then you've got the people who are saying, you know, as AI and work tech becomes more advanced, you know, some of these routine functions of jobs maybe if not replaced or, or augmented by um, by tech. And so our interactions with humans are what matters. Mm. And I, I sort of fear, I, you know, there's a bit of both, isn't there? I don't know what, I don't know what hard tech skills are going to be needed because I don't know how tech's going to advance, but certainly it's moved a lot in the pandemic and, you know, these sort of communication tools like Slack and Asana have made a lot of difference in a lot of workplaces. So that sort of shift to asynchronous work, in yeah. a sense, takes takes some sort of burden off us as people. But can you teach people to get on better with people or to resolve problems? Or you know, most cock ups in workplaces uh, or lack of productivity, I remain firmly convinced, is because people are either sabotaging each other or being petty or don't or a dysfunctional team. And it happens over and over. And we see it in politics. We see it in every, you know in sport. We see it everywhere. And and companies are no different. So I just think that just getting on with people and, you know, and the tech enables us, but the skills we really need are the human skills. So I sort of am, I don't know, what do you think? Are you convinced of that too? Yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, you're right. There's two ways to look at it. In the short term, where are the gaps in the talent market? Where's the most demand? And it is those functional skills. It's yeah. things like there aren't enough people who get cybersecurity, you know. So you, so you might say that's probably a good bet if you're going to train now. You're just entering education, you know. Maybe learn cybersecurity, maybe get you know learn how you'll be able to develop the skills which can help you contribute towards building the AI, which will augment our work. I tend to think it's easier to be thinking about what skills complement a new way of working. So I, so I had an interesting chat with the CEO of a really fast-growing. Um, business last week which essentially provide the tools to hire a distributed workforce so they do payroll 
contracts for worldwide, which of course is really complicated when suddenly you've got people working in 80 different countries and they've grown really, really fast and they are fully distributed. And I was talking to him, what are the skills which you look for now? And of course, one of the key skills working in an async environment is being able to write well and communicate precisely, succinctly. Um, And they are good skills, but even within that, I thought when you before when you said that some of the dysfunctions within organizations come from, I thought you were going to say miscommunication. Because actually, that is really often mm-hmm. when there is discontent in a team. Either it's miscommunication from the from the top or within within the, the team environment as well. So right, being able to write succinctly and to the point is important, but also understanding kind of cultural differences when suddenly people are based all around the world is, is another skill. And I, I'd love to learn what courses are preparing people for that but i mean they're the sort of skills i think udemy you know the training company did something around power skills and they're trying to change the connotation of soft skills because soft skills just seem less important so they've kind of framed it as power skills and i sort of feel like they are the things which are going to define whether you're comfortable working in 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 the modern workplace i like that power skills yes soft skills is a really bad way to frame i mean i would probably say human skills or but you're right communication is the is is the thing and I think someone said to me once on the podcast you know you can never over communicate so even if you think that you're saying too much or being too you know being a bit over fussy in what you say I mean if it's clear you know there's there's no limit to the amount of information that people want to know for especially particularly when it's coming from above you know there's a sort of history of gatekeeping by middle managers Mm. And I think that has to be, but they're sort of caught in the middle between you know, the upwards flow and also the downwards flow. So they're in a really sticky position. Yeah. So great communication up and down, is yeah. it? But you're, you know, I think the 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 tech skill thing changes so fast. And so you're right on cybersecurity. That's um, and we've had a few. You know, we get questions in from readers for our careers expert. We've had quite a few in on cybersecurity. It's obviously you know starting to trickle through to parents and yeah. teenagers that this is the coming it's sort of where coding was about five years ago yeah yeah exactly but but um you've got to feel cybersecurity is a good bet yeah. but sadly neither of my children are <laughs> in that space <laughs> <laughs> i actually wrote my newsletter this morning i mentioned this idea which linda gratton's written about in a couple of her books about the end of the three stage life so you yeah. know this idea that you would and it is crazy, really. I mean, I think when I left university, how much debt I had to do a course. And I did a, I did a management, a business course, and it, and it taught me some of the general theories around economics and communication and things like that. But some of the specifics were out of date within five years. And even nowadays, some of the more um, vocational courses are probably out of date even quicker than that. So I think even there's a general philosophy around how we train people just needs to fundamentally change. Linda talks about it. So where you have sabbaticals, you know, you might do your job for a few years and take a sabbatical for a year to retrain and upskill. And obviously that's almost an extreme way of doing it because we should just be constantly learning. But I think that's where there's so many opportunities because again, looking at what what do people desire from their employers nowadays it's usually the opportunity to develop themselves in some way so i think fundamentally both as a perk of companies but as a retention and talent acquisition tool it's going to be one of the most important factors yeah and also if if you can't afford a pay rise for you know if people are not getting inflation pay rises which a lot of people aren't some sort of training or you know funding for courses is a is a big lure actually i think that will start to become something 
it's interesting what you're saying. We've, we've got a big piece coming about the four day week trial um, yep. that's been going on. And one of my colleagues, Emma Jacobs, has been reporting on that. And we've got podcasts coming up. What came out of it was that what people did on their fifth day, quite a lot of people were doing professional development yeah. um, on their own time, actually, in, with their self-funded. Mm. And uh, there's also the issue of taking on a second job, you know, the side hustles. Yeah. So all I think if the four day week thing does start to take off, I think we might see a lot, a lot more of both of those. Which is a good thing, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, me I, too. Yeah, you know, I'm all the, for it. The question is, how many businesses would not just accept that people are doing that, as in the, the more the side hustle part, but yeah. facilitate it? Because again, I I wrote something a few weeks ago about, you know, where businesses right now are, and we're recording at the end of November 2022 when the economy is not looking in great shape. And it's, but it, and it's not just individuals struggling, it's businesses struggling. So as we think about what, what can business do to support individual workers, the natural, you know, your first reaction is how can we subsidize something within their life? How can we pay them extra in order to get them through? Because that's not the reality for most businesses. So we, we need to think more creatively. And one suggestion I put in the article I wrote was, give people that 20% of time back and facilitate their doing something on the side and actually encourage it. Because what, what do you do when you have people who are entrepreneurial in the business, they develop new skills through monetizing their own expertise. That's something they can bring back in the business, aside from the fact that they are grateful from the, their employer actually supporting them in doing it. But the problem is most employment contracts prohibit that. <laughs> but that's an obstacle we have to get through because a lot of employment contracts specifically say you are not allowed to take on other other yeah. paid employment work so so there's sort of this again it's it is there's there's different aspects to it there's the strategic aspect it's better if we facilitate people doing it and then there's probably something that i don't really understand which is how you just take out that ridiculous idea that you know you can only ever have one paid job i mean that's that feels like a relic from the past but maybe that will change you know if we go into recession and that that will become a a really you know Exactly. It could monetize stuff. For, you know, it will make people better workers. You can monetize more for the business. But I think you have to be a fairly visionary leader to see that. I'd be interested yeah. to see. But a lot of the big tech companies used to give 10 or 20 percent, didn't they, at, to, of time to people for sort of moonshot, creativity, yeah. entrepreneur. I don't know if they still do it, but that was a that was they were the first people to really think about that. Yeah, Google definitely did it. And actually, some of the Google products came out of that 20% time. Although I understand from people I know who worked at Google that over time, the take up was was lower, I think, because ultimately, the expectations of, to deliver the role remain the same. So you could either yeah. do it within 80% of your time or 100% of the time. But I, think, I mean, look, I think fundamentally, it's a good idea. But as you say, it's, it take, it's a leap of faith, probably, even a four day week. I mean, I've had Alex pang on the podcast before oh, yeah. to talk about that um and i obviously keep an eye on, on these experiments and very you know generally response is really good and most businesses continue to do it from the data that i've seen but most people and uh, most leaders most traditional companies just can't wrap their head around that idea can they that's that's the reality of it no but although they would have the capacity to do it because a lot of it i think what we've discovered from our reporting is you know if you have to be really on top of the tech and the administration so really efficient companies that are using work tech well mm. can do it better. Yeah. But, but um, you're right. A lot of the companies taking part in this experiment were quite small companies. 
you sort of see the change in work from lots of different angles and you'll be talking to different businesses, some of whom, as you say, are more advanced in the way they use technology than others. But I mean, what changes that we've experienced over the past few years do you think will profoundly affect the way we work in the future, which are going to stick around? Um, because, oh. again, there's some which seemed great at the time, but they've quickly faded into our memories. Um, I'd say autonomy. I think that genie is out of the yeah. bottle and isn't going back. So you can't give people autonomy and then try to snatch it back. Which, although it'd be interesting to see what happens in you know as we go into a much deeper recession. Yeah. But I do. But people will be resentful. You know, they might stick with their jobs if they're given less autonomy, but they'll be resentful, and that doesn't make for engagement or productivity. So yeah. I do think even if the sort of so the contract between employer and employee has shifted. In a sense, it doesn't. It's not a power shift so much as an autonomy shift. And I think, and I'm speaking probably about professional white collar jobs here and creative jobs. I, you know, I can't speak to what happens on the shop floor or in you know in retail and factories. But I do think, even in though you know the the rise of unions, for example, the this resurgence of unions now is another form of autonomy. You know, the workers are speaking in a different way than they have for decades, actually, mm. you know, and, and I find it really exciting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's completely evident in the knowledge worker world. Although yeah. I've done some work actually with a business this year, which is creating technology for frontline workers. And, you know, I think, I think that was the great thing actually about COVID in that our newfound respect for people who had to get out there and work and giving a voice to those people it sounds like this sort of grand idea we must give a voice to the people but I mean people's expectations have changed and rightly so you know I think it's easy when you're sat in front of a computer all day and you have a slack or some other employee engagement tool to make sure your workforce can tell you how they're feeling but everybody should be able to do that and at least again I think that's something that technology can facilitate so if you're on a building site why shouldn't you be able also to voice your concern about certain issues or well-being being another thing? You know, with the, the challenges around living costs and living standards right now affect everybody. So I, I think that's an encouraging thing. Yeah. So I think autonomy and just generally the way technology has improved that two-way conversation, that's got to be a good thing. Yeah, I think the idea of the good job, you know, I, um, I keep hearing that phrase now. That seems to be something that, you know, I think it was, uh, is it Zainab Ton at Harvard who did a lot of work around yeah. this, sort of the, the good job in the gig economy and in the retail economy. But yeah. I've, I've started to hear it's being used much more widely in, in this country too. And I think that's, you know, if if all workers are aware of what a good job is and what isn't through things like Reddit, you know, social media, unions, mm. I, I think that's a profound shift as well. You know, if you're not in a good job, move yeah no I realize not everyone can do that but I think there's a lot more awareness you've got businesses like Timpsons who made a big piece in the FT about you know what Timpsons are doing to help start I mean they've always had a very good reputation they employ ex-prisoners they yeah you know have I mean it's quite paternalistic in that way and that it is also still a family company but you know they offer loans to people they have you know financial advice benefits advice that sort of wraparound care for their staff maybe maybe we'll see more of that there is another subject which um i wanted to discuss with you because i, I heard a new, an interesting podcast episode you did on it pay transparency oh, 
pay transparency. Uh, I think it's such what a, a hot potato. Subject. Yeah, I just think this is so interesting because uh, look, it's hard not to think that transparency is better in in a business. You know, I think part of the problem that I've mentioned about miscommunication is often that people don't feel like they are being told the truth or that they should be able to have access to more information. But complete transparency on pay, I just, I don't know, I'm, I'm conflicted. Tell me sort of what your feelings were when you spent some time thinking about that. So I went in kind of gung-ho for total transparency and I came out a little bit more nuanced because right. I think it it can be difficult and divisive. I mean, I think I still feel that a, a certain level of transparency, whether that's around pay bans or, you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens in New York with this new pay transparency law, although the people seem to be taking the piss a bit, don't they, with sort of extraordinarily wide pay bans. But maybe it will settle down. So I'm watching that quite closely. I think there might be a law coming in in California as well. I would, I think things have got better, like in the, in the sort of creative professions, things like publishing particularly was very bad. And also journalism, you know, never put salaries on jobs, particularly for grad schemes. Um, because it was sort of was slightly dirty to talk about money and those quite pr- traditionally quite posh occupations. So mm. anything that smashes those barriers to entry is great. But I think in terms of within teams, I have done salary sharing with colleagues and that's been helpful to all of us. But yeah. I think you have to do that from a position of trust. Yeah, it's a, it's a very trust. It's a very intimate thing to say to someone. I mean, and, and you know, we, we all get a bit tongue-tied, but actually, who are we, you know, who are people protecting by not salary sharing with co-workers mm. who are on a similar level? And, you know, it's the bosses. Yeah. So um, there's that. But I think overall that it can create tension. And I have a slightly more nuanced view of it than I did. Although I really like to see a salary spreadsheet. And, you know, we're all, we're all quite voyeuristic about about that. Yeah, I'm going to put a link to that episode in the yeah. show notes because there was a, there, that was somebody from Norway have done some interesting stuff, haven't they? Around um, pay. oh, I don't know. Yeah, I, there's a. I think the Economist did a, an episode okay. on it as well, which I'll share. I'll share with you. Yeah, after. do. They uh, they essentially made everybody's tax returns, so including you know not just sort of when you're self-employed, but also your PA equivalent of PAY. Everybody's earnings were available on the website online. Uh, which sounds like a uh, slightly um, crazy, crazy world. But what they now do, which is a really, really interesting barrier, just one level of friction, is that you can you can view anybody's salary and income, but just like on you know on LinkedIn when someone views your profile, you can see who's been looking at what you're oh, earning. Oh, clever! It's amazing. It's so then you get that. That's really clever. Yeah. yeah, you get that. Like, do you get that slight insecurity? Like on LinkedIn, you can see someone's viewed their pro- your profile, but they haven't asked to follow you on. They haven't connected. They're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, done yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's really but, funny. So anyway, it was a crazy. I can't remember the number, but let's say it was something like nine, it reduced about ninety five percent or more or more because suddenly, um, you know, just that casual snooping. Oh, I've been quite interesting. It's just a bit embarrassing, isn't it, when you're looking at what other people heard? So, but um, yeah, no, it's it's a really interesting area. I, I think the the New York stuff's going to be fascinating because i think the general again i i'm i haven't got the specific numbers but as a general trend i think what tends to happen is that it does it reduces the average overall wage within businesses that do it 
but it does close the gap between the lower yeah. earners and the top earners. And I, I had an interesting chat with a career coach yesterday, and she specializes in helping people get promotions. And of course, what you see, and everyone's experienced this, is some people seem to advocate for themselves better than others. And what that means is they get promoted faster and they get paid more, even though the quality of their work may not be any better. And I, and I, I do think pay transparency or pay bans can potentially solve some of those challenges and yeah. but again it requires managers almost to advocate for their people and yeah have a better i mean i think my favorite the, the best argument for it is that more transparency is i think the quickest way to to close the the uh, ethnicity pay gap isn't it not just the gender pay gap yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah and that would be my sort of best argument even if it's not full transparency but certainly quite small pay bans for yeah uh, similar roles yeah Switching subject entirely, um, we mentioned this briefly before I press record, but um, I'm really fascinated with how you see the role of work influencers because this is a new world to me in the, in the past year, but now I... Because you are one. I, well, I mean, yeah, I guess yeah. so, of sorts. <laughs> but um, you see, some, I mean, some of these people are absolutely, I mean, they're absolutely nailing it in terms of the number of followers they have on social and they monetize it really, really well. But I wonder how you see this as someone who's been reporting on the workplace and work for many years. You know, how do you see this sort of new breed of writer? What's your take on it? I really enjoy it. I mean, I follow lots of people on Insta and I'm getting more into LinkedIn. But it's um, I think the the people are, I mean, I, I would always describe myself as a journalist as and all my colleagues. So I think the influencer economy is slightly different but I would probably take the word I I listen to people who've got a background in business or in corporate life uh so for example yourself uh you know I think Julia Hobsbawm's very good Mm. and she's run her own business and I like Bruce Daisley very much he used to work at Twitter so I think the, the kind of people that combine a kind of really great vision about work with a really solid background you know much more solid than we have as journalists um those are the people I really gravitate to I think for younger people there are a lot of work fluences in that space who are kind of uh, crossing over into the well-being space as well and some of those have always been self-employed they've always had portfolio careers and I think that's a slightly different thing yeah. but I think you know there's obviously a section of the population that really wants that and goes for it and I think you now people like Emma Gannon, I think what she does is 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 brilliant, actually, and helps yeah, a lot of people. Definitely. I was uh, somebody mentioned this to me earlier in the year, which I thought was actually a great way of thinking about whether you have something to offer other people in sharing your ideas. And um, they said, actually, who's the most useful person to look to in your career? And very often it's a person who's about two years ahead of you. If you're two years ahead of somebody else, actually, you can teach those people who are two years behind a hell of a lot. Because I think, you know, my experience is I went from being somebody who was actually genuinely uh, reticent and ner- nervous about sharing anything online. And now I'm uh, constantly doing it. And I've kind of got, you know, got over my uh, my fear of expressing I- ideas is one thing. But also, I think sometimes it is recognizing that there's something you have got something valuable to share and i think that's definitely the great thing about platforms like linkedin or instagram or, or tiktok even you know i know bruce is bruce start i think probably to help promote his book but he started a, a tiktok channel and i think he oh i haven't seen his tiktok i'll have to have a look yeah, yeah. i do like a bit yeah. of tiktok <laughs> yeah exactly get sucked in um yeah. 
So I've got to ask you, because I am a big business book reader, um, mm-hmm. about right. your some, some of your favorite business books. Of like, so I've, oh. I've got a, an ongoing list, and I, uh, whenever I can, I, I make a note of it. And I know the FT are doing their best books oh, of the year list at the moment. So. Look, I've got a big pile here. These are the oh, short list. For, I haven't read any of them. It's the short list for the business book of the year, which I've got, right. which is okay. in a couple of weeks. But I, we, we are doing our best business books. So what my what's my favorite one? What are my favorite well, let's, ones? Let's go. If you can think yeah. of them off the top of your head, what's the what are yeah. your favorite three of the year? Okay, for for this year, I think my number one book this year has been Bruce Daisley's Fortitude, which yep. I think was a really game changing book. And the second one that I thought was really game changing was Linda Gratton's book, Redesigning Work. I mean, there's lots of books that are similar in that those genres, but I think those two really stand out because they're saying something quite different. And the third book is actually a bit of a plug for one of my ex-colleagues, a guy called Mike Skapinka, who wrote a book called Inside the Leaders Club, which okay. is really, really fact-packed and based on FT events, some of which I've been to, and where CEOs come out and really talk about the, you know, it's a basically a sort of crisis management book. And also looking ahead to some things that are coming on stream now, like dealing with divided workforces, you know, how political should CEOs be, which mm. I think is it's throwing it forward a bit. I think we'll probably yeah. see a lot of books coming out in that space, but my Mike Skipping has got ahead of the curve there. So nice. those would be my three for this year. I'm going to check out. What about you? I had Bruce and uh, and Linda have both been on the podcast this year. Yeah. And obviously anyone who comes on a podcast, I read their books. Um, <laughs> so really you've read them? Uh, so I really, I did really like those. Actually, I noticed the power law is it was in your stack there, which is a book about venture capital. Yes. Um, and you know the world of venture capital, for a start, it's sort of mysterious. It's actually a lot more boring than uh, most people think it is. But actually, what that this guy's done in that book is tell a story about the birth of venture capital, and he's kind of coming coming at it from a slightly different angle, which is less technical and more character driven, which kind of you know makes it makes for an interesting read well those kind of business those narrative business books um so the one i think probably one of my all-time favorite business books is bad blood the book about theranos by john Carreyrou, yeah. and also empire of pain the uh patrick radden keith book about the sacklers so the sort yeah. of the the narrative biz book about you know hubris essentially often isn't it and uh and the fall of great empires essentially there's the, the combination of hu- humanity, hubris, greed, and enormous amounts of money, and often yeah. sort of suffering. Yeah. I mean, they're they're much better than most of the novels I read. But mm. um, so those two, I think, um, would be my top in that genre. Yeah, I've not read the Sackler book yet. Is is it quite? It's quite a big one, isn't it? I, see, I listen to. Actually, I'm going to fess up. I listen to it on Audible. Yeah, um, which I often do for big fat nonfiction books. Yeah. But I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I've I mean, enjoy is perhaps the wrong word, but it's a brilliant. I think Patrick Radden Keefe is the best nonfiction writer around. Last question I wanted to ask you. I'm interested in how starting a podcast changed the way that you think and report on work. And has it changed your mm. job? What's the difference from going from writing to having this sort of thematic approach to creating a podcast each week? It's been amazing, actually. It's because it's... Um, because I've been a print journalist for 30 odd years. Uh, so actually I was doing two jobs for a long time. So I was being a, so I don't write so much, but I'm a team leader and a section editor mm. at the FT. So I 
uh, you know, I run all our coverage of workplaces, management, leadership, all that stuff. So I was managing a small team of three three people direct reports. I was running the pages. I was running the online. So very immersed in the life of the newspaper. And then suddenly I got this essentially what started as a side hustle doing a podcast, but it has grown into a full-time job. I have a newsletter. We're doing events, you know, I'm writing a book. So it's brand, it's it's brand building essentially. I'm trying to be an entrepreneur as we discussed earlier. So what that has taught me is that audio is a very different skill from being a print journalist and that to approach it with the kind of arrogance of the experienced journalist was a terrible error. I was very bad. It's been a very humbling experience and it's been wonderful to work with podcast professionals or, or, you know, it's made by an external production company. So I'm working with external people. I think I think the word I would use is it's reinvigorated me and it has talking as you probably do talking to people from all over the world about what they do has just opened up it's like you know being in a room with 100 doors in it that were previously closed and now they're open that's how I would describe doing a podcast about work it's wonderful brilliant yeah that's my experience as well it's I mean it's it's just a great excuse to sit and chat to somebody who you probably well certainly for me you know I mean I somehow ended up doing I mean, it really wasn't necessarily a planned uh, route for me but now I just enjoy chatting to people as you said from loads of different backgrounds and it's you can put you know 45 minutes an hour in a diary in a diary and you know meet, learn some interesting things build a good connection and actually it's one of the things I've so now often I do get people coming to me and asking for career advice and they're sort of you know how can I build my profile how can I build my expertise and actually starting a podcast is a really great way of doing that because it doesn't need to be very big it doesn't you know it's actually the impact it has on yourself from a development and learning point of view I think a lot of the time that can that's probably been the biggest impact for me I mean it's led to opportunities I mean for you it's it's clearly really quickly turned into you know new opportunities including the commitment to writing a book which is you know which will be which will be great but I bet you've I bet as you said it's reinvigorating and probably taught you loads along the way so yeah I mean you sort of get to a point in your career you know I'm in my 50s now where you you know, a lot of people cruise and I, and it has jolted me out of that. But I, what I love about podcasting is the intimacy. You know, we've talked, you know, we talk a lot about connection now in the post pandemic world and lack of it at work. And I think a podcast about work like this one or my one or Bruce's one or any of them is just another form of trying to connect with people yeah. in, in a world, world that can often seem quite isolated and isolating. Definitely. Well, Isabel, it's been really nice to meet this morning to, to chat. I really enjoyed it. So thanks again you for too. your time. I've loved it. Thanks so much, Ollie. So that was my conversation with Isabel. I said during the show, I'll share some links with you. And as promised, you'll find those links in the show notes. Thanks as ever for listening. And I'll see you here again soon.